Okay, good morning. Precious Lech Lecha. So the first trivia question is, where else do we have Lech Lecha? What? Where's Lech Lecha? Shlach Lecha. Right, where's the actual words Lech Lecha? Repeated those two words. Two places Lech Lecha in the Torah. By the Pasha of Yaqedah. Fascinating, use the exact same words. The Torah says, Yemrakachna is bincha, sihidcha, shahafta, sihitzchak, velach lecha. Alaris hamaria, maliu sham laola. Kashbaruch uses the same exact words. Alach lecha, go to yourself, which itself needs an explanation what those words mean. Just a simple translation, we're not going to get into that today. Lech Lecha is referring to a concept of go, going to yourself, going to accomplish something great and incredible. And the usage of the words Lech Lecha is not a coincidence that Kosh Baruch Hu chose those words in this Nasayan, leaving, leaving his father house, Erzacha, Oladacha, Beisavicha, and by the Akedah. So I want to jump to the Akedah for a moment, and then I want to come back to our Lech Lecha, and try to compare and contrast the two Lechlechas. This is a famous question, which I'm sure we've all heard, that the idea of Lechlecha, by the Akedah in particular, and the concept of the Akedah, and the necessity of the Akedah, the entire test of the Akedah is very strange. We consider this to be the test. It's really the greatest according to most Rishonim, was the last one according to most Rishonim, the highest level, the pinnacle of Avnovinu's career in his Nisyonos is the Akedah. Willing to give up his son, bring him up to a, as a carbon. And the Mephoshim has a very obvious question. Is that if you look throughout the generations, this is something which has been something that the most simple of Jews has done. Unfortunately, again and again and again, giving up their lives, Al-Kiddush Hashem, sometimes in the most dramatic of fashions with Simcha, walking into the gas chamber, singing, as we've all heard, Baruch Hashem, Kalah has had the tenacity to have been doing this and giving up their lives for all the years of Golas. So how is it that we portray the Nes, I'm sorry, the Nisayan of the Akedah as something which is so incredible? And Avram Avinu, and he accomplished that. And something which seemingly the regular simple Jews have done throughout their lives. And there's a famous answer which we're going to work off of from Rochon Wasserman. Essentially, Rochon Wasserman himself was killed. An incredible story leading up to it. He was killed on the ninth fort by the Nazis, Akedush Hashem. He was murdered. He was murdered by the Nazis. What was fascinating was before he was murdered, they, he knew, and it was a whole group of people that were taken with him to be murdered, and he gave a shear on a Kiddush Hashem in the yeshiva, which is, you can just imagine the, the scene. People knowing they're going to be killed, he gave a shear of what it means and how one is killed of a Kiddush Hashem. He spoke about the idea, this was recorded afterwards, people who were there, who Baruch Hashem survived, recorded afterwards, that he spoke about the idea of that we're a carbon, we're a sacrifice to Kodesh Baruch Hu. One of the requirements for a carbon 
is it can't be piggle. Piggle means any wrong thought, any improper thought during the process of bringing the carbon. A person brings a carbon and thinks about it for the wrong time or the wrong carbon, he doesn't have the right thoughts in mind that invalidates the carbon. Arav Hanan's focus in that speech which he gave to those who were gathered around him was how we have to think in our minds going up for a carbon and not think of anything besides a Kaddish Baruch Hu and doing that. Incredible, incredible story in and of itself. But Rav responds to this question and says, why is it? And how is it that we consider the, the, the Akedah something which is an incredible test? He says, that was only because of Avram Avinu. Meaning, Avram Avinu put into the DNA of Klal Yisrael to the DNA of every single Jew that's ever going to live, this concept of mysterious nefesh, of giving up your life for HaKadosh Baruch, of giving your life for Hashem itself. And he says, tell Avram Avinu, that concept was something which was not just foreign, something which is implausible, not something which is even uh, something in the realm of possibility that someone could even think along those lines. Avram Avinu took it to a level, we'll call it raising the bar to the, in the highest extreme, and he didn't just do it for himself. Everything that Avram Avinu did the reason why it's called Avinu and Yitzchak and Yaakov is because the concepts that they were involved with were things they were implanting into Kal Yisrael. And they implanted into the fabric of Kal Yisrael, into the DNA of Kal Yisrael, that a person could think along those lines. They could have the concept, the ability, the forethought to think about giving up their lives for Kaddish Baruch Hu, and everything came, really was a result of that. We're all the children of Avram Avinu, which came as a result of that. And that's Rebbe Chodin's concept in the Akedah, the greatness the Akedah was, not just for himself, but really for all generations, putting that into Kalah Yisrael. I want to put that to a side for a moment and build off of that. But that's what the Nisayan and the greatness of the Akedah was. And now I want to go back to Allah Chacha and talk about that for a moment and really put the two things together. There's a very fascinating medrash which equates in many ways our Lach Lacha and that Lach Lacha. The Lach Lacha of Avram Avinu leaving his birthplace and his father's house, and the Lech Lecha of the Akedah, again using the same words. And the Medrash picks up on the fact that the same words were used, and the fact that there's a connection as a result between the two. Medrash writes as follows, Amr of Levi Barach There are two times in the Torah it says the words Lech Lecha, over here, and the parasha of the Akedah. I don't know which is more, it's unclear which is more precious to HaKadosh Baruch which is a higher level of sacrifice, of a test, of going above and beyond what a person's natural tendencies are. Rishona and Mashnia was the first one or the second one. And the Medrash ends that from the fact that it says, Lechachal Eretz HaMoriah, The fact that the second one took place at Eretz HaMoriah on the Mamariah, that's a proof the second one is a higher level, because it says, Because Haramariah is a word, which is not just the name of a mountain, but the word Maria is from the word of a teacher, like Mora, Hora, and therefore it's something which was a teaching to the world, and the fact that it took place on Haramariah is an indicator, a hint, that it was a greater level. That's the Medrash, very cryptic and strange Medrash, I want to focus on two points of this medrash. Number one, the ability for the medrash to compare the two nisyonas, to compare the two tests, seems something which is beyond comprehension. 
giving up one's child, a child that you waited for for a century, and giving up that child and bringing up for a sacrifice and we, the test of that, and compare it to the test of leaving. Not easy. Packing is not easy. Unpacking is not easy. Leaving your birthplace is not easy. Leaving your father's house is not easy. All those things aren't easy. We'll give that. That's a given. We're definitely one of the ten nationos, without question. But the medrash to say from the fact that the Torah puts them with the same wording of lech lecha, that seems to be in some level an indication that they're somewhat equal, to the extent that we're not even sure the medrash says. It's unclear which one is a more difficult. Which one is more precious by HaKadosh Baruch? Which one is a more difficult test? Compare the two? They're on the same level? I think it would be obvious to anyone that the one of the Akkadim is something which is way beyond certainly the test of Lach Lecha from our parasha. And the second point is, what's the Medjish really proving from the words Hara Maria, that it was some sort of t- teaching to the world, okay, that some sort of hint in the words Maria, Hara Maria, where it was taking place, what was going on, what's going on? What exactly is this Medjish, and how do you understand the, the equation and the, somehow the similar level between the two test. So I want to share an idea which is brought in Rav Schwab, say for me in Shoeva. And I think it's, it's a fundamental concept into the test of Avram Avinu, these two in particular, and perhaps something which we can take a very valuable lesson from. So Schwab takes us back to a Rashi in the end of Parashas Noach. Very strange cryptic Rashi. Rashi writes as follows. The last pasuk in Noah, last week's pasuk talks about Terach dying. Avram's father passing off in this world. He made Terach chamei shanim, v'sayim shanim, he lived 205 years, v'yamas Terach b'charan. And then Terach died in Charan. And then obviously we have the opening of our pasuk, it would seem, from the chronological order of the pasukim, that Terach died before Avram Avinu left. That's what it would sound like. End of Parashas Noach is Terach dying. And beginning of Parashas Noach, Lachlacha is Avram leaving. Assume Terach was already passed on. Now, it's not true. It's not true. Rashi says it's not true. Chronologically, it's not true. And it, Rashi proves it from the age of Avram Avinu and the age of Terach, which is, look in Rashi, goes through very clearly the Cheshbon. says, Rashi, Le'yamaz Terach b'charon, la'achashiyat Avram b'charon. This Pasuk, is not in the correct chronological order. This really belongs after the parsha of Avram leaving Haran. Rashi said it was more than 60 years later, and he proves it from the Pesukim, that it took place that Avram Avinu left Haran. So the obvious question is, so why is it put it over here? So there isn't a concept in the Torah. The Torah is not written necessarily chronologically, which doesn't have to be. But every time it's not chronologically correct, there's a reason for that. Torah puts things out of order when there's a lesson to be learned, some concept to be taught. And Rashi's bothered with, why would the Torah do that for? It's very confusing. You read the Pesukim, it doesn't seem to be make any sense, putting first the death of Terach, and then the leaving of Avnuvinu. So Rashi says, Why did the Torah put this Pesuk before the leaving of Avram not in correct order? People shouldn't hear about the leaving Avram and be bothered with the following issue. Avram left his father? 
Shenichu Zakim Halachlo, his father's an old man. He was 145 when Avram left, which even in those days was somewhat old. I mean, he was left at 205, so he lived another 60 years. But wasn't a young man, wasn't a person who was able to get around probably very easily. And Avram just leaves him as an old man, he leaves his father. Lukim is Avram is Kibbut Aviv. Shenichu Zakim Halachlo. Listen to Rashi says, therefore, the Torah says that he died. He didn't actually die now. But, because Rishon, even when they're alive, they're referred to as dead. Tzadikim are the opposite. Even when they're passed on from this world, they're called alive. So Rashi says, we're putting the fact, sort of a way of saying that that Terach died, he didn't really die now, but like sort of calling him dead because he was a Russia. And therefore, no one would have the issue of that Avram left his father because he was dead. Strange Rashi, he wasn't dead. We're calling him dead because he was a Russia and therefore even in his, even when he was alive, he was a Russia. So listen to this Rashi for a moment. Rashi is saying, that the reason why I put it before is because people shouldn't be bothered with the fact that Avon left his father as an old man and didn't take care of him. People will be bothered by that. So therefore, Torah says he's dead. He's not really dead, but he's like dead because he's a Russia. And that answers the problem. It doesn't answer the problem at all. Because if he's not dead, people are going to have the same issue. He left his father he's an old man. So what is that kid Rashi talking about? How is Rashi resolving this issue that the struggle and the challenge that people are going to be bothered with is that People are going to say that his father was left as an old man. He didn't die. He wasn't really dead. So Torah is calling him dead. He wasn't dead. He was alive. Torah is calling him dead because he was a Russia. So it was a very, very difficult Rashi. So Schwab says an incredible thing. Incredible, incredible idea to understand this whole episode with Terach and Avram and leaving, etc. We know, Rashi brings it down later on, that Terach did Shuva. Terach did come back and did tshuva. When? This is very unclear. When exactly did Terech do tshuva? At what point did Terech do tshuva? So Shwab, he proves it from a medrash and he has other proofs. Shwab says that Terech did tshuva actually before Avram Avinu left. He did tshuva. He did tshuva. He came back and it was somewhere in that time period. It was 140 years old, somewhere around that time period. That's when he did tshuva. And he... There's, there's proofs to that which we're not going to go into right now, but he proves that they did tshuva earlier on. In that context, he has a whole different explanation in this Rashi that's going to help us understand this medrash as well. This when the Torah says the people are going to say he left his father in his old age. Rashi's not talking about the fact that he left his father. He was an old man, hard for him to get around, to be taken care of. Rashi wasn't talking. Rashi's talking about a much, much deeper issue from a spiritual concept. Terach was a person who was a tremendous Russia for many, many years. He was a person who sold Avodazari, built Avodazari. He was the well-known story with his father and his Avodazari story. Everyone knows the story. And then he does tshuva. Some point, let's say around 140 years old, certainly deep into his life. 140 years of doing Avodazari, and then he comes around and does tshuva. How'd that happen? Where'd the tshuva process come from? So Schwab says it's obvious it came from his son. Avram Avinu is the greatest 
Makari, the greatest person, is reaching out to people around the world, trying to influence them and teach them about Hashem and trying to involve them in the process of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. There's no question that at some point that worked vis-a-vis his father. And the, the image that Avram stood for and the concepts that he stood for and the connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu was able to go and influence his father as well. And Avram Avinu was that great person who spent his life teaching, inspiring others, and certainly it rubbed off on his father and it was able to influence his father. So Rashi says, Rashi's bothered the following question. After 140 years, your life's mission of influencing others and teaching others finally made the biggest impact. Your father turned around. Your father became a person who was now Balchuva, completely. He was over Abu Azari, he was someone who was not just over, but he was causing and teaching about Azari, and now he turned around and became Balchuva. Says Rashi, now you're leaving him? Now you're going to leave your father at this point? What's Rashi bother with? Someone who was involved in 140 years of Avodah and is a fresh recent Balchuva probably needs continued support, continued teaching, continued guidance, continued involvement. Not the greatest thing to leave him. The possibility or the likelihood of him slipping back into his old ways and falling back into the things he was struggling with for 140 years, something which is a very real possibility. Says Rashi, people are going to start saying, you live for teaching others, you live for inspiring others, you live for giving over your lessons to others. You finally were successful vis-a-vis your father, and now you're going to leave him? And perhaps allow the possibility of him returning to his own ways after all that was accomplished? Can't be. Can't do that. Can't be. And Schwab takes it one step further. That that was exactly the Nisoyen, that exactly was the test of Lech Lecha. Lech Lecha is a test to the essence of who Avram Avinu was. His nature, his essence was teaching, inspiring, giving to others. And to do the opposite of that, to leave his father, who he finally was able to bring back to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, bring back to Tshuva and leave him, would be the opposite of everything Avram Vina stood for. Says Rav Schwab, it's exactly what the Nisayim of the Akedah was. The difficulty of bringing his son up on, a, on, on, on an altar and killing him, that may not be the greatest part of the test. HaKadosh Baruch Hu told him to do that. He's going to do it. You know what was the greater part of the test? That Avram Ravina was the one who was teaching the world about HaKadosh Baruch Hu. He's a Rachamim, he cares, he loves us, he takes care of us, he watches over us. And that same God wants you to take your son and bring him for a sacrifice and kill him? Is there anything more bizarre than that? You know what people are going to say? People are going to look at that and say, how could that be? That means the inherent contradiction that it's going to appear in the eyes of the world is really the greater aspect of the struggle. Because you know what that means? That's a chalasha. If Avram Avinu is a person who represents HaKadosh Baruch Hu as a, as a rachamam, as a person who cares and loves and teaches and inspires, and then the same messenger of God also goes and kills the son, what are people going to say? How are people going to look at Avram and HaKadosh Baruch Hu and the, the lessons and the mission that he stood for. Says so, Roshua, so that's the same question people are going to have by leaving his father's house. You're leaving your father's house? You care and you're inspiring and you're teaching and you left, left your father alone and just let him go? 
And the fact that Avram Avinu in both cases said, HaKadosh Baruch Hu told me to do so, I'm going to need to push myself beyond what's comfortable for me, beyond what I think makes sense. This doesn't make sense because people are going to say terrible things about me and about HaKadosh which not about him, it wasn't a personal thing, but which leads to what they say about HaKadosh Baruch Hu, what he stands for, what he represents. And that's the true and the true challenge of the Akedah. What are people going to say? How is it going to look in the eyes of the world around me how I, as an ambassador of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, are doing things which are inherently contradictory? I'm caring about my father, but I'm not. I'm teaching my father, I'm inspiring him, inspiring the world, and I'll leave my father. I care about my son, I love him, and then I kill him. And the Shwab says that's the equation the Medrash makes between two things. That's exactly what Rashi is saying. People are going to say that you're leaving your father. Listen to what Rashi responds. So Rashi says, Torah calls him dead. But Rashi, the way Rashi wants, that's not the answer of Rashi. Incredible thing. That a Russia, when he's alive, is called dead. And when Tzaddik, when he's alive, even when, he's, even when he passes on, is still called alive. The point that Rashi is really focusing on is that Terach started again. Terach had a new existence. He died their previous existence, and he started a new existence. He died his previous existence of a person who was involved in Orazara and started a new existence over again as a new Baal Tshuva was able to go and stand on his own. And Kishbaruch response to the question of what are people are going to say is that, no, Tarek can start it again. He's a new, alive person. He's a person who died the original death and started a new life over again. And look who he is now. He's able to move on. And therefore, the question that people are going to have from a spiritual perspective is that's something you should be bothered with. That's something you should be worried about. And Rufa's main point is this, what the Nisayim was, what the real test was, what the struggle in the that Avramavina was struggling with in both of these cases and equating them. The Medrash ends that how do we know which one's greater? If both of them have the same inherent struggle, that they're against the nature of Avramavina and against the nature of what he taught the world, and therefore they're both inherently a Hashem, says the Medrash, no, we know that the one which is Haramaria, the one which is, took place in Haramaria is greater because of this idea of Mora, because it's a teacher. Who is it a teacher to? Says the Medrash, Shara Yatzala Olam. It was a teaching to the entire world. It was something which was more actually explicit to the entire world. What was the teaching? The teaching that Avram Vinu taught the world was that even when things in my mind don't seem to make sense, because vis a vis it seems like a Chola Hashem, it seems something which is not okay, not acceptable. That the world is going to say and think and believe. Now look what I'm teaching the world about. The Kodesh Baruch Hu is a love. It loves us and Rachman and kill my own child. When a Kodesh Baruch Hu says that this is what's supposed to be done, this is what should be done, we put our own feelings, thoughts, emotions aside and say, this is what Kodesh Baruch Hu wants. It may not make sense to me at all today. And it may be something which inherently seems like a contradiction and really Chal Hashem in many ways. I need to put that aside for the sake of my belief in HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and that's something which was greater because it was more widespread. That means the concept of 
the Akedah was more widespread, became more well-known, because it was something which was everyone heard about. It was something which was a very public aspect, even though no one else was there. But the very fact of what took place and something which was so shocking to the world was something which was much more widespread than the than the Lach Lacha. Lach Lacha is something which, again, as Rashi said, people will bother with, and including his father. Okay? On one level, that's that's an issue, but certainly not to the same level as as, as this, where it's a contradiction. And I think that the inherent lesson for ourselves is twofold. On one hand, the idea of that going above and beyond my own feelings, intellect, thoughts, what I sometimes believe to be correct, and saying if in this case it's clear who said something which is different, that is my Nisayan. To go above and beyond. And we all have this in different, on different levels, in different places, in different areas, where our, our natural indication or thought process is one way, and it's clear that a Baruch wants us to do something different. It's clear it's a halacha, it's clear it's a... And, and sometimes it's not comfortable, not easy, and that's something which is simple. And going and pushing above and beyond that is something which is the Nisayan of the Akedah. And... The second point, I think, which, which, is, which is incredible, is that what Avram Avinu put into the DNA, as we started off with, is the DNA of Sirius Nefesh, and the DNA particularly of this ability, that pushing and going above and beyond their own thought process, our own intellect, our own what we think sometimes is correct. And Torah class says clearly, you know, in this case, this is not what's correct. In this case, something which is different than we may have thought easily, or thought simply, or thought at first glance. And that concept is everyone put into us. And whether it's in sacrificing the child or going against what seems to be acceptable to the world is the inherent assignment of the Akeda and going above and beyond our own intellect and really nullifying our intellect to Akash Baruch Hu's desire is the underlying common denominator in these two Nisyonos and Ramavinu's ability to go beyond that and putting that into our DNA that we can go beyond that. We can go above and beyond what sim- simply seems sometimes the correct or the right thing to do for the Ratzon of Baruch Hu. We have a wonderful week and a wonderful day. Thank you for coming. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. Okay, good morning. Precious the year off. Really brings us together in the past two parashiyos with a perspective on Lot. Lot's a very confusing character. On one hand, his mysterious nefesh, which we found in this week's parasha, is really risking his own life for the sake of Chesed, sake of Chamas's Archim. The famous Chazals will talk about his willingness to go around the city of Sodom with everything they stood for try to take care of his guests, certainly above and beyond what we'd imagine someone would do to the extent of giving up their lives. On the other hand, Lotus is this mysterious character whose primary struggle and challenge seems to be drawn after money and wealth and materialism. And the incredible Chazal on the Pasuk, as they're leaving, as Lotus leaving Sodom, someone's about to be turned over, and he's 
being dragged out of the city, literally, by the Malachim. And the Pasuk says, right? He wavered. And there's actually a famous, interesting trup right, on that word, which is the Shalshelesh. That's very few Shalshelesh in the Torah. Shalshelesh always has a connotation of there's a struggle. There's a pulling back and forth on both sides. And that's what Rashi brings down. They're always struggling. He was struggling. And Rashi says, why was he struggling? He was looking back and seeing all his possessions, all his monetary aspects being destroyed, about to go up in smoke. And he was, as much as it was certainly dangerous for him, and his city's about to be turned over and destroyed, Lod is struggling. So Lod certainly is this character who, there is different aspects to him. And on one hand, we see the certainly pull after materialism. We saw back in last week's parasha, Lot's decision to go to Sodom was based on that. And his comfort level in being in Sodom was seemingly the fact that they were who they were. It didn't bother him because of the pull after materialism and wealth. On the other hand, we see this incredible aspect of Haknosis Archim, of Chesed, which Lot was involved in. And that brings us to another Rashi in this week's parasha. Rashi tells us what was the secret behind Lot's being saved from Sodom. Why did Lot merit being saved? And Rashi gives us the insight and says that there was one basic reason that Lot was present by the episode with Mitzrayim. In last week's parasha, Avram goes down to Mitzrayim, he takes Sarah with him, he introduces Sarah as a sister, and Rashi says the fact that Lot stood there and didn't reveal the secret who Sarah really was, that was the reason why he merited to be saved from Sodom. Incredible Rashi. And the question is really twofold. On one hand, if you think about the act of not revealing who Sarah was, it doesn't seem to be the greatest of acts. This is his uncle and aunt who he's talking about. He's with them when they potentially, she could be killed as a result, or he could be killed as a result. They don't know what's going to happen. And they're pulling off this ploy of introducing Sarah as his sister. And he doesn't reveal the secret. Okay? It doesn't sound like the greatest of accomplishments. Particularly dealing with his uncle and aunt, who his desire to turn them in and cause Avram to get killed, certainly not on the top of his priority list after all Avram did for him. And that's the merit that he had for being saved from Sodom. That's one aspect. And then if we contrast that with certainly the fact that he was most nefesh, that he gave up his life, or literally was willing to give up his life for the sake of Achanas' Archim, Chesed, I would have thought that's a much greater act to be saved from Sodom rather than the small or seemingly small act of not revealing who Sarah was. And in contrast the two, they don't seem to be at all equal. And Chazal tells us the reason why he was saved is because of the not revealing who Sarah was. And what, what's the rationale behind it? What's, what's going on? So I want to share firstly a thought from the author of Kelm on a very different topic, but we'll see it very much relates to this as well. The author asks a very basic question. In third grade, or in second grade, or first grade, we're taught about the famous, the famous 
test that Avram Avinu had with the Kivshonesh, with the fiery furnace. Where he's willing to be thrown in by Nimrod, and he walks out unscathed, which is incredible nace. But the fact he's willing to give up his life, and the Nisayan of that, and the nace, the inherent miracle that took place, of him being saved. And the author is a very basic question. Why isn't that mentioned in the Torah? There is many miracles mentioned in the Torah, many parts of Avram Vina mentioned in the Torah, and that part gets no mention. The Medrash brings it down, it's born a Chazal. It's not mentioned explicitly in the Torah at all. It seems to be a clear, glaring omission from the episode of who Avram Vina was in terms of the things that he was challenged with, the Nisyonos, and nothing about that, no mention. No mention about that at all. So why isn't, why isn't that mentioned? The author says a very interesting idea. He says, Lachacha, last week's parasha, was the first time that there was an interaction between HaKadosh Baruch and Avram Avinu. The first interaction between them. What happened before then? So we know from the Midrashim that Avram Avinu was Hikaris Baruch. He recognized HaKadosh Baruch on his own. And he came to the recognition of HaKadosh Baruch through his own logic. And he saw this incredible world. He says, it's impossible this world came out by itself. Different understandings of when that happened. He was three years old. He was 40 years old. Different midrashim. And they're going into all those aspects right now. But he certainly came to Kosh Baruch Hu's understanding of Kosh Baruch Hu's presence on his own. Hikaris Baruch he recognized that Kosh Baruch Hu, perhaps the first person to do that on his own. So the altar says that once Avram Avinu came to that realization of Akash Baruch Hu's presence and his existence and his creation of the world and everything that that entailed any Nisoyan, any challenge which is about the existence of Akash Baruch Hu is not going out of his comfort zone meaning that the entire challenge of Kifshon Eish was an episode which revolved on belief in Akash Baruch Hu or vis-a-vis belief in Avodah Zerah he was challenged with how could he not believe in Avodah Zarah and he destroyed them, etc. The story as we know it. But that was something which Avram Avinu already came to that realization that Avodah Zarah doesn't exist, it has no power, it can't accomplish anything, there's meaningless. He came to that realization on his own. And therefore the challenge, when that came, that challenge with Nimrod of his belief in Avodah Zarah or lack thereof, that Althusser wasn't even, in, he came even called in the realm of Nisayan. Because the Nisayim means, by definition, a person going out of their comfort zone, way beyond what they feel can be something acceptable. Going beyond comfort zone is where the challenge of a Nisayim is. And he says the, kif, the whole episode of Kif Shunayish was not beyond his comfort zone of Avram Avinu. It was something which he had come to already on his own realization, his own logical understanding of the world, and the Kodesh Baruch and the Avodah lack of ability to have power. He says the only challenges came afterwards. And this really continues what we said last week. Last week we spoke about the challenge of Lach Lecha, the fact that it was something which was very a, ch- a challenge and a struggle because it was leaving his father, as we spoke about, from a, in a physical perspective, in a spiritual perspective, as we mentioned last week. The Nisoyen of the Akedah had an aspect of that as well. It was something which didn't certainly fit with his whole Midah of Rachamim, mercy, chesed, killing his child, does not fit into that. And that really goes with the Alta's concept that an Nisoyen, by definition, means going out of one's comfort zone, pushing beyond what I feel I'm comfortable with. And he says, therefore, the Kifshan Aish, the whole episode, was not considered a Nisoyen, therefore, it doesn't even bear mentioning in the Torah. 
It happened. It took place. There was a there was a nace. There was an nesayin on some level, but not an nesayin which is worth mentioning in the Torah. Doesn't doesn't deserve mention in the realm of list of nesionos that we can consider something mentionable in the Torah. That's the altar's concept in Kishonesh. So I heard an idea from the Rebbe, Rebbe Elephant Shlita. He said we can take that same concept and apply it to Lot. Lot's chesed, it was something which was so ingrained and natural to who he was that it was almost not even a challenge at all. It was something which was, it was his default mechanism. Guests come, you take care of them. Get what they need, you figure out a place where they can stay, you figure out food for them. That is what he grew up with in Avram Avinu's house. It was in his bones, it was in his, in his very essence that you need to take care of guests and they take care of them, and do whatever you can for them. Now, it's true, he went to extreme, and he went to, and he, in some ways, risked his life. But the, the idea was that it was not pushing beyond his comfort zone. That was the most natural reaction he was going to have. When guests come, you take care of them. Chesed is necessary, you do it. Avram instilled that into him. Lot breathed and lived that for years, living with Avram Avinu, and that's something which he was going to do almost naturally and without any question. But think about the concept of standing with Aram and Sarah and not revealing who Sarah was. The challenge in that was against everything Lot stood for. Lot stood for, as we just mentioned before, the desire for wealth, materialism. That was what he was struggling with really throughout every episode we know about Lot. That was who Lot was. That's who Lot was, that he stood for. To the extent that is the city he lives in is being destroyed and the smoke coming out from it, and he still wants to go back. And he's struggling, he wants to go back, and he's thinking about going back, and he wants to go back, and the Malachim tell him, You can't go back. That's how far this struggle was inherent in who Lot was. And he left Avram Avinu and went to Lot based around the same struggle. So just picture for a moment what would have happened that he's told Paro who Sarah was. Mitzrayim is the wealthiest nation that existed. Paro is the most powerful, one of the powerful people in the world. If he reveals who Sarah is, so as Chazal tells us, Avon would have been killed, Sarah would have been taken, and Lot certainly would have been rewarded incredibly. With everything you could have imagined, the person, the most powerful person in the world can give you, he would have given him wealth, reward, etc., and Lot didn't do that. And Lot remained silent. Says Rashi, that was the greatest schus for him to be saved from the, from the destruction of Sodom. Because he went one drop, one level past his comfort zone. Not, past, not just past his comfort zone, past what he stood for. Past what he was so involved in. What was such a struggle for him. What was such a challenge for him. And he pushed beyond that. Says the altar from Kelm, when a person passes pushes past something which is not natural to them. He goes above and beyond that. That's an assignment worth mentioning in the Torah. And that's what Lot was deserving of his life being saved for that very act. And think about that for a moment. That act, that one act, changed the history of the world forever. Because Lot saved. He ends up leaving Sodom. Born from Lot is Amon and Moab, which really the, the beginning of Mashiach. 
Shiach comes from Moab. Rus, Shiach, David, that whole lineage all came as a result of Lot, remaining silent, being quiet. Mashiach comes from that. The incredible power of one small act going beyond the person's comfort zone. One small act of remaining silent when I want to say something. The words are at the tip of his tongue to say that's not who you think it is. And the incredible reward he would have received as a result. And that one act of remaining silent changed the course of history forever. It's incredible. Incredible, incredible concept. And this, this idea from the Altaf and Kalman, that's what an Asoyan really represents, it's really all about, is probably the most fundamental thing that we often overlook. And I just want to segue for a moment into something which we've definitely touched upon before, but I think it really brings out this point in an incredible way. We mentioned before the idea of Rav Desla, the Nekrudas HaBachira. And just to say the basic concept, Rav Desla basically shares that every person has a different point of free will, which means that there are things that I don't do, but I don't get any reward for. Right? The fact that I walked down the street today and didn't murder anyone, it's true. I had free will. I could have murdered anyone I saw, but not really much of my challenge, not really much of my Nisayan, and therefore, the reward that I get for not killing anyone today is not really going to be of anything which is any great shakes. That's where that's the call. It's below my Nekudus HaBechira. Something which is below my even stra- place of challenge or piece of Bechira. I have Bechira theoretically. But practically, I don't really have Bechira on that. It's something which is I'm way beyond that. I'm not killing anyone today. I have another person who grew up in the slums of wherever the city it is. And that's a challenge for him. Challenge from not to, not to rob, not to steal. Not, and every time he walks back, walks by an old woman who doesn't steal her purse, it's an incredible challenge for him. And for him, that's where, that's where his struggle is. His Nukura Sabahira is way below where, this, where ours is, because that's a struggle for him. And there are things, if Desla points out, that are above our Nukura Sabahira, which, of course, we hopefully one day will get to. Maybe right, right now they're above what we're even struggling with today. Never speaking a word of Lashon Hara, just as, as a simple example. Yeah, never, never saying that's something which maybe is above. Hopefully we'll get to there one day, but that's something which is maybe above. And we all have areas where we can try, think, and break down into what's below Anakudas Abakira, things that are below our struggle, things that maybe are above us today, and then the area of where we... On the cruise, where our real Bechira is, we really wish, where our challenges are, where our struggle is, where our f- focus is. And so often, a person can go through life and the struggles that he had when he was 10, 15, 20 are the same exact as 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, and it pretty much is stagnant. And Rav Dastor says the point, and the, every, the point of our existence is to be constantly raising our Kurdish Bechira which means that there are things that I struggled with last year, which perhaps no longer are a struggle today. Things I struggled with five years ago, that today are something which I've, are, are below my Nekudas HaBechira. And if a person is constantly raising the Nekudas HaBechira, then they're doing exactly the steps of growth and process which our life is supposed to be like. So if that's an incredible thing, every person starts from a different place. And we mentioned the guy who's starting from the slums of wherever place he grew up in, we'll call him starting from a, a zero, and we starting at maybe at a 50, 
And that's what says the person who started at a zero and through his life maybe got to a 20, and another person who started at a 50 and got to a 55, who's greater? In the Kashbaroku's eyes, the person who went from a zero to a 20 is incredibly greater than the person who started off in a wonderful, healthy, functioning, from household and pushed a little beyond that, or maybe just a drop beyond that. So you can't compare. That's why we can't judge anyone. And we look at people, we judge them and say, oh, that person is not as or not as... With Who are we in any way possible to judge? We're judging based on our perspective or we think the person may be or should be or contrast to myself. But that person, the Kudus HaBechira, is way different than mine. There's not a person in this world who shares the same Kudus HaBechira as someone else. It doesn't exist. Everyone has their own Kudus HaBechira with their area of challenge, struggle, and we all have things that are below us, things that are above us, and they all look different. But I think there's so much goes with the out of income's point. Is that the area of challenge is the area of pushing beyond our comfort zone. In our Nekudas we often give ourselves credit for the things that are below our Nekudas The fact that we're doing things, incredible things, wonderful things, it's all beautiful. It's all wonderful. But it doesn't in any way measure to something which is in our Nekudas something which is a struggle, which is a challenge, and I push one step beyond my comfort zone, one step beyond what's easy for me, one step beyond what's something which is not so natural for me. That's really where a person's challenges lie, and that's where a person has the ability to make an incredible, incredible impact on themselves, on their kudos obviously, and their future of, of forever and ever, as Lot, with that one action of pushing beyond his basic comfort zone, change the course of history forever. One act, one act of remaining silent, not even doing something, remaining silent, and you know, we can think about how often that plays in our own lives when things are at the tip of our tongues and, and we, we don't say it. We don't say it. We don't say it. We're so, our natural desire is to say something, whether it, whoever that may be, whoever that person may be, our natural desire is to say something. Not necessarily something will be appreciated. And as Lot taught us, the one time remaining silent where our natural inclination is to say something change the course of history forever. Because that's where Anakudas of Bechiro lies. It lies in the areas that are our challenges, that are our focus, where we need to be pushing beyond our comfort zone. And that is an incredible ability to have effect, not just on ourselves, but on children, on future doers, on, on, on forever, and on, on history. And Rezor Hashem, we should have that strength, have that ability, that particularly in areas that are, don't come naturally, and don't come something which is the, our natural inclination, but something which is a natural inclination wants to do differently. Saying something, doing something, whatever that may include, and be able to just go one drop beyond and the incredible ability that it can have for ourselves and history. Have a wonderful day, a wonderful week. Yeah. Okay, Pasha's told us, we're introduced to Yaakov and Esav. Some of the famous chazals that we've heard from a very youth, are somewhat troubling. Chazal talks about, Rashi quotes, the differences that took place even while Yaakov and Esav were in the womb. Rabbi Seder, Der Shul Lashon Ritza. He sorts to means Lashon Ritza, Kashi of Averis, Apischei Torah, Lashem Ve'ever, Yaakov, Ratz, Mafechas, Mafechas, Lotzeis. When Rivka passed by a this Madrash of Shem Ve'ever, see Yaakov had a desire of pushing to get out. 
Averis HaPesach, Averis Kalilim, when she passed by a place of Odezara, Esav, Fereches Lachis, Lotzeis Esav had been pushing to get out, and that was the inherent difference that took place, and was very noticeable, recognizable, even at the very, this very early stage, even when in the womb. And the obvious question is, the morale asks already, that a person does not receive the Yitzhahara until they're born. The Yitzhah also only comes later on, as I'll say, at 13 or at 12. And here it seems that there's some inherent Yitzhahara, Yitzhah which is pushing the Mesa, pushing Tevah Dezara, Yaakov being pushed to the Shem Ve'ever. What exactly is going on? Says the morale, that this true, this wasn't the Yitzhahara, wasn't the Yitzhah this was their inherent nature. Inherent nature of Yaakov and Esav to be drawn after Avodazar or drawn after Bismedrash, which makes it even more difficult. The fact that Kresh Baruch created two people, two twins, or anyone for that matter, with an inherent nature towards Avodazar or towards, towards Torah itself is very strange. Kresh Baruch Hu makes someone with a pull towards Avodazara, that they're in utero already feeling this, this concept. How do we understand that? And how exactly is that fear? How exactly is that a Kashboro who structured that? And obviously, what can we take from that? It's even more difficult, which is obviously a particular struggle, is the vast difference between Yaakov, sorry, between Yitzhak and Rivka's approach to Yaakov and Esav. We're all familiar with the fact that Yitzchak approached Esau very differently than Rivka did. As the Psukim clearly point out, that once they were born, and even though it seemed to be somewhat obvious who Esau was, but yeah, Yitzchak is Esau. Now the Psukim says that Esau was Esau de Yitzayid, Esau That obviously was obvious, it was clear. Yitzhak knew what Esau was involved in, what he was doing. He was a person who was hunting. So leave everything else out. Let's say he had no idea what else he was doing, what else he was involved in. He was a hunter. And Yaakov was the Ishtar of Yeshua Halim, person sat and learned, was involved in Torah. And the fact that Postak should say that Yav Yitzchak is Esau, that he loved Esau, seemingly at somewhat of a different level than Yaakov, maybe even on a lower level in Yaakov, that's what the Pasuk would seem to indicate, when it would seem that he would clearly was aware of the fact that what Yaakov was involved in all day, vis-a-vis what Esav was involved in all day. So how is it possible that Yitzchak has this love for Esav, and Rivka, obviously a very different approach, or is Yaakov? That seems to make a lot of sense, that she had this love towards Yaakov based on who he was and what he was doing, and certainly the values that he stood for. So how do we understand Yitzchak? There's an idea from the Vilna Gon, it's on a Gemara that discusses a difference between Shaul and David. It's in quote the Gemara, very fascinating Gon. Gemara says that Shaul was Chata Ba'achas and he lost the Malucha as a result. And David was Chata B'Shtayim he had two different sins, and the first one discussed which sins he's referring to. But he was chata b'shtayim and v'loye, and he didn't lose the malucha. That's the Gemara says. So the Gemara asks a similar question. So how, how is that fear? 
similar to what we asked before with Rashi on Yaakov and Esau in terms of their inherent differences. But here it seems to be also that some lack of, of fairness, the fact that Shoal was Chate Vachas, and the Gemara does not tell us that his chait was a much greater chait. The Gemara says, no, it was Chate Vachas, and as a result he lost the Malucha. And Dove was Chate Bishtayim and didn't. Seemingly the Gemara is not telling us there's different levels of Chatoim, because I wouldn't say one and two. It sounds like that even though it was one, and maybe even one on the same level as, as David's two, he lost the Malucha. So the Golan says an incredible thing. He says this is the secret, or the idea behind the well-known Pasuk of Shlema Melech, the Chanoch Lanar Pidarko, that a person has to raise children, a according to their derech, and the Goyen says that people and children, particularly, are different. They're created with different natures, with different inclinations, with different desires, with different pulls towards whatever that may include. And he says, therefore, it, it's not fear, but it's fear. Meaning that because HaKadosh Baruch created every single person different, and they're inherently different, and they're different. So you can have a David who was Chata B'shtayim, did worse, we'll call it worse Averos, than, than Shaul did, and held to less of a level, which means that Shaul was Chata B'achas, and he was held on a higher level of accountability, and David was Chata B'shtayim, and it was not. It says the Gon has that possible, because David had a more difficult inclination, a harder to overcome, and as we'll see more about David in a moment, and Shaul didn't. So if you have one person who it comes easier for them, and one person who comes harder for them, obviously the person who comes easier for them is held to a higher level of accountability than the one who comes harder for them. And the Goan says, this is why Kodesh Baruch created every single person. We have different natures and different inclinations, and towards Ra or towards Tov. And he says the very same idea as Yaakov and Esau. Yaakov and Esau is not about Yitzhahara, about Yitzhah Tov. It's about the very nature. The very nature of Esau is inherent pull was towards Avodah Zarah. And Yaakov's inherent pull was towards Bismedrash. And that was obvious in the very fact that they were, this was taking place in utero, before they were born, before Yitzhahara, before Yitzhah Tov. This was their essence, this was their nature. And that's how he explains how it's possible that people are held... And the Gemara is telling us that he's held to very different levels. Now, David has a lot of connection to, to Esav in many ways, similarities. Right? David was also Adomi, he also was a redhead and red. And the Gemara says, particularly about someone who is redheaded, that it's an indication often of their nature. Right? The color of their complexion of the hair, etc., often is indicative of their very nature. It's talk about flaming red and their things of, of often comes with a temperament, somewhat hot-headed, which is somewhat common. And the Gemara says that someone who was born under the basil of, of Edom, which is often manifest in the way their physical appearance looks like, the Gemara says they have an inclination towards towards murder. They're much more hot-headed and they easily can get anger, angered, and therefore they have an inclination towards Shvichastamim. 
And the Gemara says that it's true, that's their essence, their nature. And the Gemara says that what the person should do with it, hopefully, is, is channel that exact energy into more positive things. And even though they have an inclination towards murder, try to use it to become a shochit, to become a moel, or to something along those lines. They're going to use a very exact midah and use it in a more positive way. That's what the Gemara says. And David, obviously, in his nature, was very much struggle with that. And the Gemara says that even though he was chot to even though he had two serious averis that he struggled with, he did not lose the malucha as a result because who he was, his essence, was not something that he deserved to lose the malucha based on that. Let's use that to try to understand Esav, and particularly in terms of Yitzhak's approach towards Esav. It's a very fascinating Rambam. Rambam and Shmona Prakim quotes the philosophers, which is interesting. Rambam obviously had a lot of respect to them, and you'll see from this piece, he very much held them in high esteem in terms of their ideas. And the Rambam says that the philosophers question who's greater? Someone who is inherently good through and through, or someone who is, has difficult or even negative inclinations and overcomes them. That's the philosophers we're discussing. And the, the Rambam quotes the philosophers as saying that someone who is inherently good is a better person. Listen, that person is good through and through. Vis-a-vis someone who is, has negative traits, negative inclinations, and overcomes them. And the Rambam says that from Chazal, we seem to see not that way. That Chazal talk about, he gives a few examples, but he gives one example, is that a person should have and almost encourage a pull towards Ra. And the Chazal say very fast than anything. A person should not walk by something on kosher and say, I don't want that, but should say, I want it. I would love to have that. It smells delicious. I would enjoy it. But HaKadosh Baruch said not to. And I'm overcoming the fact that I want to have it. So the Rambam says, if you took those two ideals, someone who says, I don't want it, is like a person saying, listen, I'm no shaykh, I'm no connection to that, I'm, I'm good. As opposed to someone who says, I want it, and is pulled towards to it, and has desire for it, and overcomes that. Chazal say, a person should say, I want it, I would enjoy it, it would be great, it would be delicious, I just, I'm overcoming that and listening to HaKadosh Baruch Rambam says it seems to be a chazal, and he gives a few other chazals as well, seem to contradict this idea. Now the Rambam takes an approach which is fascinating, which not everyone agrees with, as we'll see. The Rambam says that both are correct. The philosophers are correct, and obviously chazal are correct. And he says both can be true. He says it depends what type of things we're talking about. He says mitzvot sikhlios, things that you would imagine that every single human being would understand there's something wrong with this obviously murder, things which are immoral, things which everyone accepts as something which is wrong. He says, those things, it's better not to have that desire for in the first place. Because that's something which is inherently ra, inherently bad. But he says, those things which are not necessarily inherently bad, but things we don't do only because HaKadosh Baruch Hu said so, like the example the Gemara says of kosher or non-kosher, nothing bad about non-kosher, it's just something HaKadosh Baruch Hu said. The other Rambam says is the value in wanting it, desiring it, and overcoming that. The Rambam says both can be true, the philosophers can be true, Chazal can be true, both can fit together depending on what we're talking about. 
Many other Mepharshim disagree and say no. In both areas, whether it's a mitzvah sikhli is something which is inherently seichel, something which is inherently accepted by the world, or things not, there's an advantage. There's a higher level. There's a greater aspect of someone who has the pull, has the desire, and overcomes it. Rather than someone who doesn't have that at all and is sort of totally free and connect, disconnected from that. So if you go with that approach, which there's many chazals that seem to support that, and the first bring is even against the Rambam, and to support this idea that the idea of Makim Shaval Chuba Omdun is one example of that, but there are many other concepts that someone who's overcoming, someone who's pushing past, is in a way much greater than someone who never had the Nisayan and never had the challenge in the first place. So I saw in the Sefer Ber Yosef of Shmuel Salant, he wants to use this idea to explain the way Yitzchak approached Esav. And you know, when I was going through this, it gave a whole different perspective on Esav, perspective on Yitzchak. You know, we have a very childish often perspective of Yitzchak who was fooled by Esav, and Esav had all these funny questions, and he thought he was good, and he didn't really understand. You know, almost like thinking of Yitzchak as this somewhat foolish individual who really can't figure out who his child is. And Shmuel Salan explains that Yitzchak's approach and understanding of Esav was very much based on this concept. He realized that Esav had, Natios had inclinations. He was pulled towards Avodazara. He was pulled towards Shvichas Damim, towards murder, right? The idea that he was Edom, that he was red, the idea that he saw from a utero, he was pulled towards Avodazara. He had all those concepts. And that means Esav's nature, Yitzchak realized, was something which was inherently I don't want to use the word evil, but on some level it was, it was pulled towards very negative things. And that was the Kashbaruch who created in that way and gave him that inclination. And the fact that Esau was out hunting, Esau thought was a wonderful thing. He could have taken that, that very inclination towards murder and used it to kill people. And he, as far as he knew, Esau was involved in hunting animals. And as we saw later on, he even hunted them and, and did good things with them, brought them to his father, and obviously he was able to, I always wonder exactly how, right, did he shech them, did he, catch, did he capture them? I'm not sure, you know, we think of hunting with bows and arrows and killing them. Probably was certainly different than that. If Yaakov kept the Torah and he asked Esau to go hunt him, obviously he was figuring a way to, she, to shech it. There's actually a Gemara thing that talks about the ability to shech with an arrow, to slice, to be so precise with the arrow to shech. But that's a side point. But regardless, he saw that something which was a positive thing. That Esau was overcoming his nature and involved in, in hunting. Now, to add to that, even though Rashi clearly brings down that Esau was involved also, in, unfortunately, in murder and involved in immorality and involved in Avodah Zarah, Esau, I would assume, was, all, was aware of all that. Because that was part of Esau's struggle. But to the extent that he was overcoming that, and using it for channeling it towards other pursuits and towards other aspects and channeling it towards hunting, which may have been the best thing for him to be involved in because that was the, he had such a strong pull towards Ritzicha, towards murder, for him to be using it towards hunting is a wonderful thing. The greatest outlet, the greatest channeling of his kohos, visibilities was to use it for that. And therefore Yitzchak, in many ways, realizing what Yitzchak was, but also realizing his inherent nature, felt this was something which was wonderful. And the Yitzchak as Esav is giving the love towards Esav that even though he could have been easily perceived 
as bad, as negative, as someone who was an evil person, but to the extent that he was overcoming his inherent, very, very difficult nature, Yitzhak had a tremendous love for that and appreciated that. And the love that a, that a person who was able to look past and not judge based on what their actions, but based on the person, based on who the person is. Back to the, what the Vilna Gaon says, Hanukh Lanao says exactly this point, that I can see a child and realize that they have different struggles, they have different challenges, they have different inclinations, they have things which are inborn to them by HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and if they can overcome that, it's incredible. It's incredible, and, and therefore, you know, the, the very basic notion of looking at each child as, as, as the same and saying, is this one doing the same as that one? They're all doing well. Doing well for one child looks totally different than for a different child. And for, for Esav, looking well, looking good, may have been hunting. Been the best use of his kochos, the best use of his abilities, and that may have been doing incredible. And for Yaakov, the fact that he was learning, okay, he was drawn that way since he was in utero to go and draw into the base measures. The fact that he was doing so was not something so great. And based on what we said before, in this, if, we, if we weigh the two, who has a greater, perhaps in Akash Baruch Hu's eyes, and someone who can really see the inherent truth of who is greater, Asa may be greater in terms of overcoming who, who, he, who he was and everything he was doing. Now what's interesting is that Rivko saw it differently. Rivko have us as, as Yaakov. So the, the Yosef, um, Shulslant explains that Rivka had an insight which Yitzchak didn't have. She had a nevuah from shame, from Aver, that this was not the case. That there was something much more going on here to the extent that, as the, as the, the nevuah she was told, is that one up, when one's up, one, the other one's down, there's a clear difference in terms of them inherently that there's a rishos to Esav, which even though he may appear to be doing somewhat on the outside, but to the extent that Yaakov is, is a tzaddik, Esav is a rasha. And she had that insight from, from Shei she had a nevuah, which she was given. And she knew that they can't both be successful. And to the extent that Yaakov is doing well, Esav is not. And there's a rishos that, that's there. And the Ramban really brings it down. And the Ramban says, she never told that nevuah to Yitzchak. The Ramban is very interesting, is that he, he suggests perhaps she never even asked Yitzchak about going to Shein Vebu when she was struggling and she went on her own and therefore she had a hard time sharing that Nebuah afterwards with, uh, with, um, with her husband. The Ramban says another possibility could be she felt that Yitzchak was a greater number than she was or even greater than Shein Vebu and it wasn't necessary to share with him. Either which way, the Ramah says clearly she didn't share the Nebuah with him. So she had this insight into Yaakov and Esav that Yitzhak didn't have. Straight from HaKadosh Baruch straight from Anavi. But taking away that perspective and that insight, there's perhaps no way for anyone seeing it without that perspective to see and judge Yaakov and Esav and say inherently that Esav is, is evil and Yaakov is better without that Nebuah from HaKadosh Baruch And that was Yitzhak's different perspective than, than, than Rivka. And explains, therefore, the brachos he felt he wanted to give to Esav based on what he was accomplishing, what he was doing, and he was the Bahar as well. What was fascinating is that the brachos he gave, which he, he thought it was Esav, was he should be, eat Mishmani Aretz and eat from the, the things growing in the land. It sounds like he was trying to 
take Esav or encourage Esav or give a bracha to Esav, he should get even past the hunting, which again is a somewhat of expression of that idea of Ritzicha, of, of murder. It was maybe the best thing he was able to do at that point, but the bracha certainly was going one step further and becoming a farmer and not having to kill, not having to murder, but relying upon a Kaddish Baruch Hu for the rain, etc., all those things which, which are inherent in the idea of a farmer. So as part of the bracha certainly was giving to Esav, which turned out to be Yaakov. But that was all part of the way Yitzchak approached that. And I think looking into these lenses, it's a very, very different approach to Esav himself. Again, it doesn't mean Esav was being successful in this, in this pursuit, but certainly the way Yitzchak perceived it, it was a very, very different picture than we, we perceive Esav as this wicked, evil person. He was certainly doing things which weren't correct, but perhaps with his nature, with who he was, it wasn't something which even Yitzchak saw that Risha's in there. And without the Nevoah of Makesh Baruch, he wouldn't see that. And I think ultimately the, you know, the, the lesson and the, the limud in terms of, you know, for ourselves, certainly in terms of vis-a-vis children and vis-a-vis approaching others in general, is, is really this incredible idea that you know, we often have this lens, how we view people, how we judge people, how we view our children, how we view people around us, and sometimes missing this, or overlooking this point that Akash Baruch did make people and every person, every individual, Inherently different, with people have inherent pull towards things which are ra, which which are which are evil, and them overcoming that in a way can be an incredible greatness that they have, which someone who doesn't have that at all. The great tzaddik sitting in Yoshev um, time Yoshev Ahalim doesn't have, and, and an incredible thing, and, and it gives a different appreciation towards our struggles, towards people's struggles, towards our children's struggles, and seeing it in a way which we can value them. We can appreciate them. We can look at them in a very different light than perhaps we would have without without this without this concept. To the extent that even Esav, who was certainly we would perceive as this great Russia, we can look at it very differently. Esav did look very differently without again this hidden aspect of who Esav was from the Nevuah. It's an incredible incredible lesson. Hopefully, we should be able to take that and use it in our certainly in our chinuch and people's approach in general. Have a wonderful day. Yeah. So the Pasuk says, Vine Sula Mutav Arzav Rusha Megiel Shemaima. There was this Sula and there was this ladder which was on the ground going up to the heaven. The Malachi Lakim going up and down. Vine Hashem Nitzavalov and Akash Baruch who is Kaviyachal standing on top of this ladder. This is an incredible Medrash, very fascinating Medrash. Medrash compares the different aspects of the ladder to the following. It says, Vinei Sulam Zua Keves. That the Sulam was compared to the ramp of the Mizbeach. Mutzav Atzazah Mizbeach. The ground itself was like the Mizbeach, because the Mizbeach was made out of Adama, made out of ground. Rosh Hamagiyah Shemayim, these are the Kabanos, which has the Reach, the center of the Kabanos goes up to Shemayim. Malach Elokim Elo Karanim. This is a reference to the Karanim. Olam Vyodumo, these go up and down the ramp. Vasham Mitzav Olav and the Hashem standing in Kaviachal above this, was like Hashem over the Mizbeach, as the Pasuk refers to in Amos, Mishtiyas Hashem Yitzav al Mizbeach. Very interesting connection to the Mizbeach, to this ladder. That's one shot in the Medrash. The second shot the Medrash brings down is V'yachalom v'nei sulam zeo sinai. That the, ref, the, the sulam, the ladder is referenced to Sinai. What's the connection? Because sulam is the same gematria as Sinai. They're both 130. 
Mutzavartza, this is a reference to the Klayosol standing underneath the ground of Harsinai, when Klayosol is under the Kashbrach who the mountain over their heads. Rosha Megiyah Shemaima is the idea that the Har is Borah Be'esh, was lit up on fire until Shemayim. Ma'al Ho'ikim is Moshe of Aaron. And Hashem means of Allah again is a Kadosh Baruch on top of Harsinai. Two different interesting connection references, one to the Mizbeach and one to Harsinai. And the obvious question is, what does that have to do with anything? What does the latter have to do with any reference to Harsinai, reference to the Mizbeach? What exactly is this Pasuk teaching us in terms of the messaging that Yaakov Avinu saw? I want to share an idea from the Nasiva Shalom from the Salon which is an incredible concept, and I think really is very, very applicable in many ways as a message to Klai Yisrael. We know myself, the things that others saw weren't just for themselves, weren't just relevant to them, but for all of Klai Yisrael, for all future Doros. And certainly this is an example of that. This message to Yaakov Avinu was the message of Klai Yisrael about to go into Golas, about to go into the really couple thousand year Golas up until today. And this certainly was the message to Yaakov and all future descendants. So the first point he mentions is that there was a complete shift that was taking place right at this moment in Yaakov Avinu's life. Yaakov, as the Pasuk describes in last week's parasha, was the Ishtam Yerushiv Aholim. sat and he learned, he was involved in learning, and nothing else. The last thing we know about Yaakov before this episode was Yeshiva Shem Ve'ever. So 14 years he was there, he didn't sleep, whatever that means, he didn't go to sleep, he didn't sleep in a bed, whichever, he wasn't certainly involved in material pursuits for his entire existence up until this point. Right now, he's going to base Lavan. What took place in Beis Lavan, as we know, was going to be, he was involved in taking care of cattle, he was involved in livelihood, involved in Parnassah. There was a very big shift in terms of Yaakov's life's mission from before this point and after this point. The struggle that Yaakov had at this point was the ability to still maintain the highest possible levels of Kedusha, even outside of the so-called base Medrash. He was leaving the base Medrash now. He was going beyond the walls of the base Medrash and going into the so-called regular world. And the ability to maintain all the levels that he had accomplished for the first many decades of his life was something which he was certainly concerned about. The, the dream that Yaakov had was really an answer to that. I want to jump ahead for a moment just to right after the dream, he wakes up and he says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu was in this place, I didn't realize HaKadosh Baruch Hu was here. Very strange words. He didn't realize HaKadosh Baruch Hu was here, HaKadosh Baruch Hu was everywhere, there was something particular about this place, he had a dream, therefore he realized HaKadosh Baruch Hu was here. So the different shot of exactly what it means, but Islam Rebbe says an incredible thing. He says, I didn't realize HaKadosh Baruch Hu could be in the same way in the base Medrash and out of the base Medrash. That means the same HaKadosh Baruch Hu that a person can, can connect to. In the world of Ruchnius, he can, is able to connect to HaKadosh Baruch Hu in a similar way in the world outside of the, the, the base Medrash, the regular so-called world that we're all part of. And he says it even a step further. He says that the average person, the way a person was created to be, was to live in this world. And yes, there are Yechidim, there may be individuals who are Zohar to be in the world of the base Medrash for 120 years. That's Yechidi Eskula, which is very, very few and far in between unique individuals. 
but the average person was meant to be, and was certainly the, the goal is to be able to live in this world and be able to incorporate kedusha into their world and Baruch in that way. And he says this dream was this message Yaakov Avinu that the abilities to connect to Baruch is going to be something which you can do even in your outside world. And he says this is what the Medrash is referring to in these two concepts. The Medrash refers to the Mizbeach and refers to the Harsinai. And so the idea behind the Medrash is really two different ways of connecting to HaKadosh Baruch Hu in the so-called regular world, the world of Avodah and the world of Torah. Two different paths, obviously not contradictory to each other, they can both go together, but the Medrash is referring to two different paths that a person is doing so. It says a very interesting thing. It says that the, a ladder, by its very definition, has a very specific framework. You can't go out so off the ladder. If you climb the ladder and you step off the ladder, you fall down. So that means the idea of a framework is that a person has to be in a certain structure, in a certain framework, which is you sort of held to that and not veering off of that, not going off of that. The other aspect to a ladder, is besides that it's a structured framework, is it goes rung after rung, step by step. A person can't skip steps, can't jump steps, try to jump steps, the person falls off, and it goes step by step, rung by rung. And the Siva Shalom explains, that's what the Medrash is teaching us, that this sulam, this ladder, is exactly the ladder of the, in, which is, corresponds to the Mizbeach, to the ramp going up to the Mizbeach, the goal and the structure of Yid in this world, in the path of Avodah, the path of, whether it's Tefillah itself, which is certainly a, a, a component of that, but the path of Avodah in general, Avodah Hashem, which is all referenced by the Mizbeach and everything that, that, that's surrounded us there. You have Kabbalah, etc. Us connecting to Kadosh Baruch through that concept. The person is able to walk that path. I mean, stay in the structure of my, of my focus, that my goal, my purpose is all about the Avodah. It's true, I'm involved in many, many other things. And that's what he says, the reference of the Sulam starting on the ground. It starts at a very, very basic level. It's on the ground, very much part of this world. But has the ability of a person staying on the ladder and staying in the structure of their avodah, focusing on avodah Hashem, to climb step by step at Hashemayim, reaching Hashemayim. This is again outside the world of the base Medrash, where a person is not in that context where they're totally surrounded by Ruchnias. They're in the world, it's the ladder sitting on the ground, it's in the regular framework of, of this world, but it's in a very, very focused direction. It's the focus of avodah, focus of I have to go step by step in that path the ability to accomplish Ada Shemayim in that framework. And he says Torah is the same thing, the other reference, which is Harsinai, is, the other, is, the, is a similar reference, where a person's in the framework, in the structure of Torah, not veering off of that. That means Torah is the primary defining factor in how they make decisions, and where they're going, and the direction they're going. That's going to be the primary factor. There may be much else going on in a person's life, but there's the anchor which holds a person in the framework of that ladder, which a person can't veer off of that, and again, can use that to climb step-by-step step in that concept. And it says, this is the concept what Yaakov said, I didn't even realize, until HaKadosh Baruch Hu sent this message, how much it's possible to be within the framework of HaKadosh Baruch Hu and connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, even in the regular so-called world. When a person focuses on the Avodah Hashem and focuses on the, on, on the Torah being the anchor of everything they're doing, that's my focus. That's my primary 
structure and of, of my life. That's the foundation of everything I'm doing. So I can be involved in everything else. And a person is working, and a person is involved in the regular day-to-day life, which is somewhat mundane. But this ladder is, is, is the focus of where everything is directed towards, and it's directed upwards. It's firmly planted in the ground, which is part of the ground itself, but it has the ability to accomplish all that because of its, of its focus. And so that, that's this, the idea of this medrash, both in terms of the avoda and the, and the, and the Torah. I want to add to that, which I think there's, there's a, this, this is a, a very foundational piece in terms of first realizing that where things, where priorities are, how a person creates priorities, how a person creates structure, how a person creates his focus, is all around these, these, these two areas. But this is a step further. There's a very interesting Gemara in Sukkah. Gemara quotes of Shunma Yechai, where he says, Risi b'nei aliyah I saw there was b'nei aliyah, people who are growing, people who are, lack of a better word, steiging, growing as, as, as individuals. They muatim, but there are very few and far in between. And it's a very strange Gemara of Shunma Yechai, almost seems, seems like putting down the whole generation, uh, look around the whole world, and there's, B'nai Aliyah, there's so few people who are actually growing and, and, and accomplishing. Baruch Hashem, the Klai Yisrael is full of people who are working on and, and, and accomplishing and growing, etc. And I once heard a beautiful idea that what Shem is saying is as follows, that in Chazal, a house, a two-story house, is referred to as follows. The bottom floor is a bias, and the top floor is called an Aliyah. Bias at the bottom floor, Aliyah is the top floor. Shemayachai says, We see B'nai Aliyah. I've seen people who got to the Aliyah, which is the top floor of Himwat, and those are only few and far in between. What does that mean? Most people are stuck at the bottom floor. Bottom floor means you look up, you see a ceiling. The person sees like sort of an end point to their growth, an end point where they can accomplish what I can get to, how far I can go, and they sort of have this self imposed ceiling on top of themselves and look up and say, okay, this is probably as far as I can get to. Those who can break through the self-imposed limitations that most of us have, those are the Muatin, people who can get to the Aliyah. And I think this is a, a crucial point in, in the context of, the, of, this, of this ladder. Why? Because there are two ways to get from a bottom floor to a top floor. You can walk up steps. You can climb up a ladder. The difference between a ladder and steps is very simple. A person walks up a steps, their hands are to their side. You're just walking up the steps. By a ladder, a person's hands are over their head, climbing rung by rung. And the Swarim say an incredible thing. The idea of a person's hands over their head, my hands represent what I can do, what I can accomplish, what I can be involved in. A person who has their hands below their head is the person, again, who's limited by how far as they can imagine themselves becoming and how far imagine themselves they can accomplish and can't perceive more than that. A person who keeps their hands over their head, a person who says, I, I'm not in any way defined by as much as I can imagine myself today. I can, it's way beyond that. I can accomplish way more than that. I can grow to, to levels way beyond that. And therefore, the message of Yaakov is through a ladder, that a person's hands over their head, no self-imposed ceilings, of the bias, which is limiting a person to what they can accomplish. And I think, particularly in context of this, Nesiva Shalom, it fits in so, so incredibly. 
that Yaakov is being told and being taught that so often when a person is outside the Bismedrish in the regular so-called world, they say, okay, what can a person really accomplish? How far can they really go? How far can they really accomplish? A person is sort of a regular person. He's not the God of the sitting in Bismedrish day in and day out. He's not Yaakov Avinu, the Ishtam Yerushavahalim. He's the Yaakov Avinu which is sitting in, in fields of love and, and pasturing sheep and taking care of sheep. And the Torah is telling us the message of Yaakov with the dream is that in that state, in the state of being in the so-called working regular world, a person can accomplish way beyond what we can ever imagine. And often that, again, that self-imposed limitation is, what can a person really, how far can they really go? What type of great person can they really become? And that is the, the greatest error that a person makes to themselves, is setting those limitations of just being a regular person just being a regular person in the world, not something special, not Rebetzin Kanievsky, I'm just a regular person, so like, how much can I really accomplish and, and become? And, and Yaakov's dream, and the latter particularly, is a focus on there are no limitations, and there's no level which a person can't get to and can't reach as great as Rebetzin Kanievsky in, in their own way, and in their own avoda, with that focus that there's no, there's no limitations to that. And I think particularly, just to add one, one point to that, which I think is very poignant, is that Yaakov's dream came right at the moment, really, which is the start of Gullus. Right? Yaakov now is, again, leaving this cocoon of, of him being in the Besmedrash of Shem and Aver and sitting in his father's tent, and etc., and going into Lovin's house, which is really the beginning of Klai Yisrael going into Gullus. Obviously, the next step was going down to Mitzrayim, and then the Shratim going down to Mitzrayim. This is all the beginning of of the end, as they would say, the beginning of the, of the end of, of a certain part of, of Klai Yisrael, which was very, looked very different than the Klai Yisrael in Golis. And this is Yaakov, before he's going down to Golis, this is the message he receives. There's a reason why I came at this time. This is why I came right now. He's about to go into Golis. When we think about the Gaulus, we think about the darkness of Gaulus, which certainly is represented by the darkness of night when this dream came. But we often think about that Gaulus comes with difficulty. It comes with hardship. It comes with struggle. It comes with challenge. It comes with challenge on a global level. It comes with challenge on an individual level. It comes with many challenges. And the challenges come from all over, from every area, from the simplest notion of a person can't be as settled when they're in Golis, which as we know is certainly true when a person is, doesn't feel right, settled, like we spoke about a few weeks ago and since this uh, situation in Pittsburgh, what that gave us a different feeling of how we view ourselves in America, or just in general. A person is going through their day-to-day life without the ability to have the full menuchas and nefesh that we're all looking for. We don't have that, especially in the state of Golis, where we don't have the full level that we, that, that we, we want. It comes from a challenges that from every area which is represented by this darkness. Darkness represents the challenges that a person goes through in their life. And we often think that the challenges and the struggles that a person goes through hold them back from really accomplishing so much. And hold the person back from really getting to what they want to become because I can't fully focus and can't fully get to what I want to get to and I'm distracted by this and I'm pulled by that and it almost doesn't allow a person to really believe that they can accomplish that much in their own 
greatness and own the Vodas Hashem. And Yaakov is being taught that it's not despite the darkness, but because of the darkness, they have the ability to reach Shemayim. It means this, this ladder is set in, in, in place in the state of darkness, in the state of going to Golis. Then now Yaakov is being shown you can get to Shemayim, not despite of, because of the darkness of all the challenges you're going to face individually and collectively as Klai Israel. And there's an incredible lesson to that, that so much of what a person has the ability to accomplish is not despite what we're going through, but because of. And because of the things that challenge us, because of the things that we struggle with, and because of the things that we push through past the struggle, that really gives us the ability to accomplish and really attain greatness. Greatness comes as a result of that. A person is, when things are going smoothly, simply, easily, which doesn't really exist so much in this world, everything's going simply, smoothly, and easily, but in that, in that utopian world, in that idealistic concept, the ability to really accomplish growth is almost non-existent. When a person's coasting along and everything's going simply and smoothly, the real growth of a person attaining their own greatness doesn't happen. It, doesn't, it's, it can't get to it. It happens in darkness. It happens when there's struggle. It happens when there's challenge. It happens when a person's pushing themselves. It happens when I'm going beyond my natural capabilities, my natural self, or my natural struggles, my natural tendencies. That's where greatness comes in. There's an incredible addition to that, is that the step before this dream... What Yaakov did, Yifka Bamokom Yaakov reached this place and he instituted the Tfil of Mayriv. That was the immediate, immediately preceding this dream. And I think it's an incredible lesson to that, is that the Tfil of Mayriv was a Tfil that was done at night. It's the only Tfil which we have in, at, at, at night. And the lesson of that is that there's a different type of Tfil where the person's davening at night than during the day. Day represents things are going well and bright and Akash Baruch whose presence is, is obvious, that's all represented by day. There's a different type of tefillah which is represented at night, which is a tefillah of darkness, a tefillah of when things are not so easy, not so simple, somewhat challenging, small challenges, big challenges, on every level in between. And the message Yaakov taught us is right before going to the ladder, right before trying to climb that, that ladder, the first step is tefillah. The first step is a person calling out to Kaddish Baruch Hu, that I realize that things aren't going to be as smooth as perhaps I want them to be, as easy as perhaps I want them to be. And I realize that Kaddish Baruch Hu, I need you to be able to help me get through this darkness, get through the difficulty, get through the challenges, get through the struggles, and be able to really start climbing the ladder. And the person, after Vayifka Abamakam, after the tefillah, steps onto the ladder, puts their hands over their head, and says, I can accomplish anything and everything now, Ara Shemayim, until Shemayim in the world of darkness, in the world somewhat disconnected from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, in the world which is outside of the base Medrash, in the world which HaKadosh Baruch Hu's presence is not obvious, is not realized. I find, I find the structure, structure, as I said before, of Avodah, of Torah, which are my guiding forces in life, and I realize that I can use that as a rung-by-rung, step-by-step process. But the most crucial point is the latter doesn't end. The ladder never ends. The person's lifetime, the ladder will never end. And in some way that seems depressing, it is the most rewarding thing possible that I can accomplish levels inside of where I want to get to, which, will be, which are limitless. There are, there's nothing limiting me. There's nothing which is holding me back. There's nothing which I can't get to. There's no level of greatness that I can't reach. And every person has that ability to reach the incredible levels of greatness, which is not limited, not by the bias, as you mentioned, just the bottom floor, 
You go to the aliyah, to the top floor, no ceilings, nothing holding a person back, and the darkness, the challenges, the sometimes things which are somewhat difficult, really give the ability for that to happen. And a person is able to push past them, their own natural tendencies in self, and really be able to find kochus inside of themselves and find places of, of, of strength inside of themselves and accomplish things they never thought they were capable of, that's really where a person can attain greatness. And that's the ladder that we're striving for, hands over our head, lifting up and hoping for things way beyond that we can ever imagine ourselves today and be able to look back after a year and two years and five years and say, well, look where I came from. Look at the steps of the ladder that I actually climbed and actually got to and look where I've, look where I've, I've reached and look how much more I still can accomplish and there's no limitations to that. And Be'ezer Hashem, with that concept in mind, which I think is a, is, a, is a life mission, it's a life challenge, this ladder, where it represents, where it was, how it was structured, what the goal was, where in Yaakov's life it was, what point it was, this all gives a context to where a person can hopefully use as a, as a, as a mission for every person individually and hopefully attain the greatest possible heights possible. Have a wonderful day. Okay, good morning. So I was thinking about an incident that took place last week. We got first the hint of the incident was a letter we got from our daughter's seminary that they were traveling back from uh, Tuol. And don't worry, everything is safe, and they're going on a safe route, and they're working around different issues, and we shouldn't be concerned. No idea what they were talking about. And the little research and found out there was like 350 rockets that were being shot in at that point over that day from Gaza. The girls were down south then. Baruch Hashem, nowhere near anything was going on. But I was thinking about this. There was, I think, a total of 370 rockets that were shot from Gaza in a period of 24 hours. And this is like a regular day in Eretz Israel, like regular classic day, unfortunately, which happens all too often. Rahman son, there was one person that was killed, which is certainly a tragedy beyond. But it's hard to imagine 370 rockets being shot and one person being killed. It, it, it's hard not to call that Nez Goli, and these Nisan Gluyim that take place daily in Eretz Israel. Mrs. Young was here last week. She showed us that picture of the bus that had a whole platoon of soldiers happened to have been from, but it's, either which way, it's, it's, it's an incredible nace. And this rocket hit a minute after they went off. I think it was like less than 60 seconds after they went off. Right? The driver was unfortunately injured. There was this boy that she, she played the recording of this boy who was on the bus. Right? They're from a friend of her son's who was on the bus. And was, they got off the bus, and less than a minute later, I think it was, the bus got hit. Direct hit by a rocket, and they all would have been killed. Nisan gloom taking place near Israel all the time. And I was thinking about that over this past week, and I came across something which this week's parasha, which I think gives a lot of reflection upon this concept and what exactly it means for us. And I want to share two different points in, the, in that vein. Start with a question, which is a question which really bothered me, which bothered anyone who's reading the Sukkim. Yaakov meets Esav. They go through this long dialogue, and he first he hugs him and he kisses him, as we're all familiar with. And towards the end of their meeting, Yaakov says words that are very, very difficult to understand. 
take your present that I gave you. I saw your face. Seeing your face is like seeing the face of and you have accepted everything, you have taken the present. The words themselves are almost impossible to translate. Yaakov is referring to Esav as seeing his face like seeing the face of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, which obviously is almost impossible to understand. Rashi says, it's referring perhaps to the Malach, that the Malach, the Malach of Esav, either which way. The idea of referring to Esav and Yaakov telling him like seeing your face like seeing the face of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, seeing the face of a Malach, whatever it may mean, seems to be beyond something which is understandable what Yaakov was trying to say. Now the Gemara comments on this Pasuk, and the Gemara says from here we see that a person is allowed to flatter a Rasha. Bolam Person is permissible to go and flatter a Rasha in this world. That's Rashi. That's the Gemara. Gemara says this. Right. The Gemara says this on this pasuk. So itself is a chiddush, and the Gemara seems to be saying that because of the fear that Yaakov had and the concern what Esau might do to him, he felt necessary to flatter him, and therefore he was saying words which are certainly words of flattery. It's seeing your face, like seeing the face of Elokim, Ratzitzani. But it still begs the question, I mean, there's a level of flattering and a level of flattering. You can say how wonderful you are, perhaps. You can say what a good person you are, perhaps. Well, flattery, which is certainly beyond what would be acceptable normally, but permissible in this case. But to use the words, Kroos Pnei Kim, that seems to be beyond what you would ever consider in any way permissible to use about a Russia, that we all consider Esav to be Russia and the way he acted certainly was with Derek Rishus, and to use the words of Kiros Paneo Lakim seems to be incomprehensible. So the Gemara now standing that it's mutter to be machlef to be flatter a Russia, but to this level seems to be very very difficult to understand. That's question number one. Question number two. A little earlier in the Pesukim, where they actually meet Yaakov meets Esav. Yaretz Esau the Krasso, Esau rode down to greet him, and he hugged him. The Yipal Tzavari falls on his neck, and he kisses him, and they cried. And they cried. Vayifku means who cried? Yaakov and Esau. And they cried. So, firstly, why is Yaakov crying? Why is Esau crying? Pasuk is unclear. They obviously had maybe some emotional reunion, perhaps. But Vayivka also has a connotation. They both cried for the same reason. That's the way when you say Vayivka is they cried. Usually you refer to them crying for the similar idea, similar way of connecting to each other through crying. And the Mephashim struggled with exactly what was the crying going on, what were they crying about, and particularly what were they both crying about? Almost over the same thing, it would sound like that there would be some sort of, of crying. So that's the second thing I want to try to get to. So I want to share an idea which is brought down in Rav Schwab's Sefer on Chumash. This is an incredible idea. So as we know, on this word, there is many dots over that word. And there's a question of why. Nakadullah Rashi says, Rashi means and there's different opinions why there's these nikudis, why these dots over the word of Ayishakeyu. So the second Shah Rashi says, I'm Rav it is a clear, accepted fact, halacha, 
The Esav hates Yaakov. And therefore, what should have happened at this time was they met, Esav would kill Yaakov. Ella, Shanichmur Rachamov Bosashah, Unashakir Bacholibo. Koshparuchu aroused a feeling of Rachamim for, from, from Esav to Yaakov. And even though inherently there was a tremendous hatred, and so much so that this is a halacha, this is a, almost a fact, that Esav hates Yaakov, Kashparuch at this time was nichmur rachamav, he aroused the compassion for Yaakov Bosashah, v'nashko b'cholibon, he kissed him with his full heart, that means it was a pure, legitimate feeling of, of affection, of emotion, between Yaakov and Esav, which something which was certainly an ace gully, certainly an open miracle that took place. I saw, just almost as an aside of Schwab brings down, that Virochem Levavus Mashkech Lemir points out that, of course, Yaakov didn't know this was going to happen. Yaakov had no idea that Esav was going to have this miracle would take place, that Esav would be overwhelmed with the feeling of Rachamim, and that's why he did the Ishtadlis of Tefillah and, and the presence and splitting the Machana. And there was certainly a necessity and a need to do all that Ishtadlis because he had no idea what was taking place. He had no idea what, what, what was happening. But he says, he says an amazing thing. He says that for the nace was particularly Esav overcoming his midos. This is a classic, you know, mashkiach idea. He says the nace was overcoming his midos. He says for someone to overcome their midos, it's only to this level where it was an ingrained, inborn hatred. That certainly is a nace. It takes an ace, and is an ace, and he says as an aside, maybe a few words of Musser, that this is not true just by Esav, it's true by all of us. That for a person to overcome their basic midos that are pulling them to a certain direction, and to overcome them and overpower them, it almost takes an ace. And that's how much a person has to work on themselves, and has to fight really their own basic inherent nature, because... It's it's the level it takes to certainly overcome a mida is is incredible, but that's almost as an aside. His point is yes, Esav had to come to the level we overcame his own midos, his midos rose, etc. To the point that wasn't just he overcame them; he actually came to a tremendous love and appreciation, at least at this moment for Yaakov. So what now? He Rishwab now paints the scene and says. Yaakov does all this ishtamlis, prepared for the worst, separating the camp, sending presents, he's davening, he has no idea, obviously, this nace is going to take place. And Lakash Baruch who makes an incredible nace. An nace that at that moment that they met, Yaakov is, Esav is filled with this rachamim, this feeling of, of, of mercy and compassion, and he, he's overwhelmed with this feelings of, of love for, for Yaakov. So if you think about what's taking place at this moment, this is both Yaakov is realizing this nace and Esau is realizing it as well. Esau realizes something just happened now. This wasn't Esau naturally doing this. He didn't want to go and love Yaakov now and kiss him as, as rash as the holy bow. But something came over him. Akash Baruch took over the controls and created this nace. says with Schwab that when this nace took place with both, with both Yaakov and Esau were aware of he says, they both cried at that moment for the same reason. He says, Yaakov was crying upon realizing that how low Esav had fallen, that his son of Yitzchak 
a grandson of Avram Avinu, had the ultimate desire to kill him and would have killed him and planned on killing him. And had a Baruch Hu not created this incredible nace, he would have died at that moment. And Yaakov is crying upon the state of where Esav fell to, his own brother, Yitzchak's son, Avram's grandson, fell to that level. And Shwab says that Esav at that moment is crying for the same reason. Esav realizing at this moment the nace that took place, and realizing how low he had fallen, and realizing how Kadesh Baruch had to do an incredible nace to overcome his nature of not killing his own brother, being a son of Yitzchak and a grandson of Avram Avinu, the, right, full of Rachamim and full of Chesed, and he's about to go kill his own brother, and Esav realizes what took place. Esav also cried, realizing how low he had fallen and the state he had fallen into, the same reason Yaakov's crying. And as a result, he says there was an incredible Kiddush Hashem that came about. The Kiddush Hashem was that this open miracle where HaKadosh Baruch Hu's presence was revealed through him taking over Esau's emotions and controlling them, not allowing him to go and express them the way he wanted to, was an incredible Kiddush Hashem. HaKadosh Baruch Hu did that and made it apparent. It was apparent to Esau, apparent to Yaakov, apparent to all the 400 men that were with him and all the, some say it was 400 generals, which means it was tens of thousands of people that it was, it was obvious to. It was obvious to Yaakov's wives, to his children. They all saw that an incredible nace took place. The nace was so overwhelming. Yaakov and Yaakov were both crying about this nace and realizing what it took for this moment to happen. It says of Schwab, an unbelievable thing. So when the Pasuk says, the Yaakov refers to Esau that I saw Kim, he's referring to this nace. He's referring to the nace that took place. I saw through our interaction, through our connection, I saw Kodesh Baruch Hu's presence in a most obvious, clear way. Because it took that intervention of Kodesh Baruch Hu to stop the, the feelings that Esau had towards Yaakov and cause him to stop and, and the opposite feelings of, of Rachamim, feelings of Ava. This is what the Pasuk means is Yaakov says to Esau, when I, when I saw you and we interacted in this way, Kodesh Baruch Hu's face was seen. Not that I saw it on you, but seeing you and seeing the way you reacted and seeing the way you changed and seeing the way you went from this tremendous overwhelming, feeling, overwhelming feelings of hatred and, and anger to love, he says, now we're seeing HaKadosh Baruch Hu's clear, obvious interaction and intervention to make that happen. So he says that when the Gemara says that it's Mutter to Imachna for Russia, he says, yeah, it wasn't lying. He actually saw Pnei Elohim. He saw HaKadosh Baruch Hu's face. He saw HaKadosh Baruch Hu's... He says, but to use Esav and say, Esav, you were the conduit for that and almost making it like, you know, I'm, I'm thanking you for that and you brought about that, obviously that's something which is somewhat flattery. You know, it wasn't Esav in his good intentions doing that. It was Esav's negative intentions which brought it about. But that was the flattery which was used. But the idea of seeing Pernil the Kim was something which was clear. There was Pernil the Kim seen through the way Esav reacted, through his face, reacting and changing from the sinner toward, towards Ava. And you know, I was thinking about that in, in the context of what we just started with, open miracles, the, the Arabs Shemam, day in, day out, attacking and Doing, you know, doing everything to in their power to destroy Kalal Yisrael. So in this case, unfortunately, it's not their 
turning to Ava. It's, that didn't happen. But what is happening is that there is a incredible, incredible real, real revelation and realization of Akash Baruch Hu's presence. And in some ways, that is the greatest Kiddush Shemayim. When there's a halacha that Esav and it's Yishmael hate Kala Yisrael, and they do things and they try to do things to Kala Yisrael, and it's clearly thwarted by Akash Baruch Hu. There is no other way to explain 370 rockets coming, raining down in Kalah Yisrael and one person being killed. It's not possible to explain Apidara Chateva. They're not that bad in the rain. Right? It's not that, that they're people who are intelligent people, unfortunately very skilled in, war, in warfare, and 370 rockets, deadly rockets, each one can, can kill and, and destroy many, many people, and one person is one person too many, but there's one person that, that, that's killed, and it's, it's a nace. It's a nace goalie. And it really should cause us to reflect in the same way. We We just saw Kodesh Baruch Hu's presence. We just saw Kodesh Baruch Hu as a parent, clear, overwhelming presence. And unfortunately, because it happens so often, and it just takes place in a negative way, and it's all the time, so we, we miss out on that opportunity to see Pnei Elohim, to see Akash Baruch Hu's presence. And you know, I was thinking about this in light. I spoke about this on Shabbos. You know, we had, uh, we were supposed to come back on Shabbos, on Thursday with, you know, I was flying back with Sari on, on Thursday night, and a flight got canceled, so I ended up driving back. And for our whole experience, you know, I mentioned the Shabbos morning in, in Shul, we, we try to focus on all the, Nisim that Kodesh Baruch Hu did for us, and there was there was a number of them, and anyway, compared it to to Yosef in a few weeks, parasha coming up, Yosef sent down to Mitzrayim, and the famous idea that Chazal bring down. Normally, the Shmuelim carried very difficult smelling things and kerosene, etc., which is overwhelmingly very negative smell. And in that case, Kodesh Baruch Hu made a nace that he carried. They carried sweet smelling perfumes, and Chayish Beloved says that was a we have a Kodesh Baruch Hu showing I'm there. As difficult as it is, you're being thrown into the dungeon, you're being thrown, sold out to Mitzrayim, you were tried to kill by your brothers. Kodesh Baruch Hu says, I'm still there, and I want to show you that I'm still there. And that's on a lower level, where it's not so obvious, something negative perhaps is happening, and Kodesh Baruch Hu still shows that I'm there, I'm taking care of you, I'm giving you the sweet-smelling spices. In the most difficult situations, there's going to be the sweet-smelling spices, but there it takes a person to find them and to think about them and to look at them and to discover them. But you know what? When it's obvious and when it's an open miracle, it also takes introspection to find it. Rock is falling in the air no one getting killed. It also takes looking a little beyond the surface to see Pnei Elohim, to see HaKadosh Baruch Hu's presence being obvious. And we have the ability to see it all the time in our own lives in very, very simple ways. And in very grand ways, like an episode in soul on, on that nature, where there's such an incredible attempt and clear, open miracle, Kodesh Baruch Hu saves them, it's something which is very, very, very obvious. And I think that's part of our job, is that throughout every aspect of nace, small or large, to be able to discover the Pnei Olakim, to see the Pnei Olakim, and to realize the obvious hand of HaKadosh Baruch which is which is present. And I want to just add one, one last point to this, maybe on somewhat the flip side. Rav Schwab adds another idea. 
about the Vyavik Ishimo, this Malach that was fighting with Yaakov Adalos Hashachar, Vayvasi Yaakov Levado, Vyavik Ishimo, Adalos Hashachar. And there's a number of different Chazals who was this person. The most famous, the all familiar with it was the Sarah of Esav, was the Malach of Esav. But there's a Medrash. Medrash says, from the, it's a Pikud of Elazar, that says that this person, this Malach, called himself Yisrael, just like the name of Yaakov. So he called himself. And the Gemara says, almost in a similar vein, had this person looked like? Swam Chan, the Gemara says, he was near a Tamil Chacham. He appeared like a Tamil Chacham, probably a long beard. Right? He looked like a, like a, like a Tamil Chacham. So what, what, what does that mean? If we understand, he was a sire of Esav. He's fighting with Yaakov, Adolos HaShachar. This Tamil Chacham, or near a Tamil Chacham, this person who calls himself Yisrael, is fighting with, with Yaakov. What does that mean? Who is he fighting with? So Schwab says, says a... Incredible idea, but it comes from the Chazal that Yaakov's face is covered. What does that mean? So he explains that Yaakov is the epitome of Emes. Tite and Emes the Yaakov. Yaakov is the expression of Emes in this world. And Akash Baruch obviously is the epitome of, of, of Emes inherently. So Yaakov's face being raised on the Kisei HaKavod is the ultimate sign of MS. Yaakov being the, the semel, the sign of MS. Esav, unfortunately, is the ultimate sign of Sheker. The Sar of Esav, the Malach of Esav, is the, the semel, the, the symbolism of Sheker in this world. He says the ultimate Sheker is when the Sheker tries to appear like MS. That is the worst, the most difficult type of Sheker. Shekhar, which is clear and obvious Shekhar. Okay, so Shekhar. Shekhar, which tries to appear like Emes, is much more difficult. He says, what Esav often does is he tries to appear like Yaakov. And he says that when the Medrash, when the Pukat of Eliza says that this Malach introduced himself as Yisrael, he was trying to pass himself off as Emes, as a tzaddik, as... And he says that's the greatest fight that we have with Shekhar, is when it tries to appear like Emes. Mishael Sharm says that there are two types of darkness. There's a darkness when a person can't see and bumps into things. This is a more difficult and more devious darkness. It's when it makes things appear like something else. It makes the chair appear like a dog, a monster, right? right? That's, the, that's a more difficult type of Choshech. Of, of because instead of just appearing dark, it makes things look the opposite of what they are, maybe more sinister than they really are. And Rishwam says that's really what Esav does. Esav is Nirukatamachachim sometimes. He appears himself as, as, as the Tzaddik, he says, and he tries to present himself as a Yisrael, as a Yaakov. And that's the ultimate fight. The ultimate fight is when he appears and he tries to sell himself off as something which is great. Rishwab says that the Christians have done that. They based everything on the Bible, on the Old Testament, and with incredible distortion. He says that's a much more difficult type of Sheker. Because when you're using the Torah itself as the source of your distortion and taking the greatest MS and distorting it, it's a much more difficult type of Sheker than just a classic Sheker, which may be an open, clear lie, right? There's, I think of the Mormons, 
right? If anyone's ever researched the Mormons, how they came about, right? Some one guy, I forgot his name again, right? Who found the golden tablets in his backyard? Familiar with that? Joseph Smith, thank you. Right? He found the golden tablets in his backyard, right? And he built a whole religion around it. He built a religion about him finding the golden tablets in his backyard, right? So, it's, so I think that is like laughable. So that can be ludicrous, right? Okay, so some Nebuch who, who and, but I mean, even him, because he has a pretty large following, right? But Rishwab says the Christians are that much worse, because they're basing it off Torah, and they're basing it on distorting Torah, and taking Torah to a level which is, which is Shekhar. And he says, so much so that this is a much more difficult and, and, and inherent struggle. We struggle with Sheker, which is trying to appear like Emes. You know, I was thinking of that just in the context of Eretz Yisrael in general, but it's so much more than just, just there. Every time something, something like this happens in Eretz Yisrael, who gets blamed for it? With the Israelis. Right? We're the cause, and we're the, we're the ones who are causing it. We're the aggressors. We're, it's taking the what's apparently clear, should be clear, open miracles of HaKadosh Baruch Hu and Emes, and making it to Shekhar. Now, we're the ones who are the aggressors, we're the ones who are trying to attack the Arabs, and we're the ones who are making all the issues, we're making all the problems, and we're the cause of it all. There is such a, a clear, inherent Shekhar that's built into it, and makes the struggle that much more difficult. And that's part of what, you know, if we be clear that our soldiers are defending themselves from all the aggressors against them, that'd be one level. Well, we have to now defend to the world that we're really not the aggressors, and it's being turned on its head that we're the ones who are doing the attacking with the aggressors there. It makes, the, it makes it that much more difficult. The Shekhar is that much more difficult, because now it, it's, it's taking the MS, making it Shekhar, Shekhar is that, everything is, is, is all intertwined. And that often loses the focus on the Nase. We often lose the focus on the Nase of HaKadosh Baruch Hu when Shekhar becomes so apparent. And Shekhar, particularly, which is cloaked, cloaked in MS and, and trying to cloak it, the, that makes us lose focus on HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And I think that's often what the Satan, what Asa, what Samal, which is all the Yitzhah does, is he clouds our ability to see the MS. Because Shekhar and MS are becoming so intertwined. And something which is clear Shekhar could feel like MS, MS feels like Shekhar, and what that does is it, makes a, it creates an incredible distraction. And very often the reason why we don't see and we're not aware enough and not focused enough on the obvious apparent presence of a Kodesh Baruch Hu in our own lives, whether it's in our Yisrael, in our own personal lives, etc., is because of this lack of clarity that comes to Shekhar and Emes being blurred. And in our Yisrael, I think it's so apparent where that Shekhar and Emes is blurred when, we're again, we're being blamed and we're being focused on being the aggressors, etc., that certainly distorts our ability to see things clearly and see HaKadosh Baruch Hu's presence. And sometimes in our own life as well, when we want to be able to see HaKadosh Baruch Hu's presence and see where HaKadosh Baruch Hu is so apparent, when things which are MS and Shekhar get blurred and, and, and the lines get so easily mingled and we can't see things clearly, we can't see things what they are, that at best is a distraction, sometimes creates a distortion, it certainly doesn't have, allow us to see things in a clear, apparent way. To see HaKadosh Baruch in every aspect of involvement in our lives. And Be'ezer Hashem, which hopefully ought to see Emes for Emes, Shekhar for Shekhar, see things in a clear way. And through that, and as a result of that, be able to really see HaKadosh Baruch Hu's presence in our own individual lives and the running of Klai Yisrael Be'ezer Hashem Yisbarach. It was a wonderful day. Thank you, dear.